Thank you, thank you, David. I was kind of hoping you'd have a more upbeat ending. That was really a week, thanks be to God. Uh, I read this parable all week, and it made me think of when I was a little boy. Some of you may remember that on, uh, when you bought cereal, that you would have these boxes that you would have coupons on the box tops. Do any of you remember that? And They would have little lists of things that you could get if you had enough box tops, and you tore them off and, and saved them. I was thinking about a time, my parents tell me this about myself so much I could never forget it, but that there was one prize that I really wanted. It was a, a finger printing kit. And the finger printing kit said something like this, that it is authentic and professional enough to enable any sleuth to solve crimes just like they do in the FBI. I tell you, I wanted it. So I set to work eating that cereal. I think it was corn pops, but, but we called it back then sugar pops. Do you remember sugar pops are tops? So I ate and ate that sugary cereal until I had all of those box tops that I needed, and I packaged them up and I mailed them in and waited for that to come. You can imagine I had all sorts of dreams. I had an older brother. I had all sorts of dreams of catching him in some of his mischief. I knew I'd catch him in something and he would say, I didn't do it because older brothers always say that. And then I would say, aha, and I would pull out my fingerprinting kit and I would produce evidence that he could not deny and he would be, oh, life was going to be good. It was, it was going to be good. Um, but I waited and I waited and I waited and it never came. I became so frustrated. My parents tell me that I would go around the house saying, those cheaters, they, they're not honest. And I wrote them over and over and over again and said, I sent this in. Why isn't it here? Finally, months and months and months later, that fingerprinting kit came. And I'll tell you, what a disappointment. It was, it was just like this greasy black powder that when you got it, it just got over everything. And, and we had this cheap brush where all the hairs were falling out of it. And there was this little magnifying plastic thing that really you couldn't see through it anyway. And these little white sheets of paper. I, re you, I remember it well. I'm still wounded over this, thing. <laughs> over this thing. I remember trying. I couldn't tell the difference between my thumb and my little finger. And I remember trying it even with our dog. And my thumbprint looked just like the dog's paw. <laughs> I was devastated. Hopes were dashed. I mean, first I had to wait all of that time. And then after waiting, it was not at all what I expected. Now, I, I thought I'd tell you this story because I can imagine that every one of us here has a story just like that. I, I can hardly imagine that we don't because life is like that. As children, we have these things that if only this would happen, then life is going to be good. And then maybe it comes and it's not as good as we thought it would be keeps going on. We get into high school and we think if only I could graduate and get to college then life will be great. I get away from home. Then we get away from home. The food isn't all that good and this, the, what you thought you would study you don't really enjoy. Then you think, well, when I graduate and I get into my career, you get into the career and there are no jobs or, or the field you don't really enjoy. And you think, well, maybe it's my relationships. If I could just get married, then that person will fulfill all my needs. And then you marry somebody else who thinks that they'll marry somebody who will fulfill all their needs. <laughs> And then you bring all those needs together and it just doesn't seem to work. And then you think, oh, if only we could have children and children as great as they are don't fulfill the inner, all the needs of lives. And then we start thinking, when only the children are gone and we can be empty nesters. 
And then we just keep thinking, if I can retire, if I could have grandchildren, if I could live near my grandchildren, and it goes on and on and on. If you can relate to any of what I'm talking about. <laughs> and who cannot? Who cannot? Then I think you'll understand the main point of this parable that Jesus told just before he went in to Jerusalem on the first triumphal entry. As I see it, if I can just boil it all down on one side, he wanted to make sure that all people knew that he was indeed the king. The king that everyone had longed for, that all creation had wanted to come. He wanted people to know that. He tells the story of the king, and then he rides in as only a king would ride. But at the same time, he wanted them to know that when he came that when, and, and brought his kingdom, it wasn't going to come in its completion as quickly as they thought. Yes, he would bring parts of it, but it wouldn't come as quickly. And second, it may not be exactly the way they had thought it would be. Like a loving parent turning to a child, saying, it's going to happen, trust me, it's going to be better than you could have ever imagined. It just won't be quite the way you thought it to be, and it won't be as fast as you thought it to be. Did you notice, as David read, the very way Jesus opens this, chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus told them a parable because he was already near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God, and here surely the whole fullness of the kingdom of God, was going to come at once. And they thought that everything, everything would be restored and they would be able to be those in power. Now let me tell you, if, if you listen to that story, and I hope you listened carefully or read it on the screen, this is surely one of the most difficult parables of all the ones Jesus told. But I do think all of us will be able to grasp its main point. And of course there in verse 11, Jesus himself told us why he's telling the story. Because he's getting near Jerusalem and he wanted us to know that yes, he's bringing the kingdom but we're going to have to wait for a while and so we're going to go through some tough times and so I think it's still relevant. The kingdom has not yet come in all of its fullness. We still walk through these very difficult times, don't we? Wondering when is it going to come? When is God going to do something that will change everything? Now the story itself is a little complex so I have to give you some background because if I don't, I don't think we can understand the story or else we'll misunderstand it maybe make it mean the opposite of what I think it really means. What Jesus is doing here is he is telling a story about a prospective king who knows or thinks he's going to be the next king, but he has to take a long trip first to a place where his kingship will be validated. Did you notice that? And this was front page stuff in, in the home country of Judea because they had a king in Judea. It was a puppet king. I mean, the real ruler was in Rome, the emperor, the Caesar. But in every province there would be a king and they had had a king, Herod the Great. In fact, every province had one of those. But for that person to be called a king, they had to make this trip to Rome where the emperor would validate, this is my king over that particular province. Well, Herod the King the Great had just died. And his son, one of his sons, the heir apparent Archelaus, thought he would be the next king. He was a cruel man. He was a rotten man. He killed people without any reason. But he was going to go and take a trip to Rome because he had to go because his kingship had to be authenticated. So he packed up to take this long trip to Rome. But many people opposed him. Many people, including some of his own family. Some of those closest to him and his own family sent a separate delegation to tell Caesar how bad he was. Well, eventually he was given power. And I'll tell you, as you can imagine, a person like that, he was angry. And he called some of those in opposition to him to be slaughtered right in front of him. Like verse 27. 
Now, when I read this story, what I see this story of Jesus being is a story not unlike some of the ones that we have seen before. Do you remember the, the story? Of, I'm sure that every one of you has been to every one of my Luke sermons, right? Yeah. All right. Uh, when Jesus told the story about the unjust steward, remember he said we're not to be like the unjust steward. We are to learn some principles from that unjust steward. When I told the story about the unjust judge, Jesus was saying God is not like that unjust judge. So if that, that one shows justice, just think of what God will do. Well, as I look at this story, what Jesus is saying is something like this. I am that king. I am that king that you expected, but I'm not a bogus king. And I am not a king like Archelaus. I am not one who's going to call people in front of me to slaughter them just out of spite. In fact, if you will look at the rest of the story, Jesus is one who will invest in his people. When he comes in, even those who reject him, you will find him weeping over the city out of love for his people. And eventually the investment that he makes is that Jesus gives his life for the people so that we can be rescued. So that he's saying, I am the king, but I'm not a king like Archelaus. And I'm not going to come as fast as you think. So how are we to live until God completes his work in this world? And I see the story and the trip into Jerusalem that follows as declaring several truths that I think help us And I think they are as powerful now as they were when Jesus told it. What does he say? Declaration number one. Jesus is the king over all kings. Jesus is the one that all human beings have been created, have been made to follow. Whether we know it or not. Whether we know it or not. Now here I go to a a pastor that that I love hearing. Pastor Tim Keller in New York. He contends that you can find stories like this in every culture. And I know he's right about that. Scholars have shown that. A king who is there or a soldier or a hero who is in the country leaves for a while and everybody wants him to come back and it's not until he comes back that everything is restored. So that, that he says, these are the stories that people like to tell and children like to listen to. And these, he says, are the books that sell wherever you go. He said they sell more than the business books, than the self-help books, than the cookbooks, than all the books, because he said we have a longing to have someone who will come who is good and uses his authority to make all these things that are wrong, to make them right. Now, I think he's right about that, but you know, many scholars have seen the same thing. And here I'll bring in my years in the academy. Many scholars seem the same thing and they say, no, nah, it doesn't show that sort of thing. What it shows is that the Bible story is just a copy of every other country. You find these stories like this, you know, these myths and legends like you have in the Bible. In every culture, you find them among the Germans and and the Greeks and uh, and African tribal communities. And that just shows you this is just another one of those legends and myths. It's not real. What, What are you gathering and celebrating at Holy Week? But maybe, maybe now that you and I began this year in Genesis 1 through 3, maybe we can read this story in a different way. You remember when when we began reading the book of Genesis, God identifies himself as being powerful and active and present in the world. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we find God walking and talking in the Garden of Eden in paradise with us as people. Everything is right and it all begins with God being the king of our lives. Genesis 3, everything falls apart. Genesis 2, everything is right. Our relationship with one another... Adam and Eve, our relationship to God, 
our relationship to the world. We're able to name the animals and care for the world and use the gifts that we have to make a positive difference in the environment in our world. Genesis 3, everything falls apart. We reject the kingship of God. They don't think he's good. We can do it better. And then what happens is their broken relationship with God, a broken relationship with people, the shame that comes in and guilt, and broken relationship with creation. We don't care for it properly. But already in Genesis 3, verses 15 and 16, you find the beginning, beginning evidence of a promise that God still loves people. And even though we've walked away from His kingship, He's going to send someone someday who's going to crush the head of that evil serpent. And as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you find those prophecies becoming clearer. It will come through the line of David. It will be one who restores, come as a king, rioting into the Jerusalem. All these things happening. So that as we come to this story, that one that we have been made for, Genesis 1 through 3, the one who is to rule our lives so that everything else is right, is going to come back again and restore. And I think Tim Keller is right in saying all human beings long for that, whether they know it or not. Now maybe you hear me waxing eloquent up here and you say, well... I don't agree with that. I don't even like those kinds of stories. I like to read Harvard Business Review, uh, uh, Sports Illustrated, uh, Seventeen Magazine, whatever it is you like to read. I don't like these stories of soldiers and kings and, and heroes. And I can only say, oh really? Oh really? C.S. Lewis talked about this, about this longing that we all have to have the right person as the king of our lives. And he talked about in Great Britain where people would always make fun of, of monarchs and kings because they had a king. They had a king, you know. And so he wrote something in the newspaper that I think is so... You have to listen carefully here. So I wrote it too, uh, so you can read it. He said, monarchy, kings, can be easily be debunked. But, he said, watch the faces, Mark, well, the debunkers. Because these are the people whose, and he calls it, taproot in Eden has been cut. Going back to Genesis 1 through 3. They're broken from understanding what we were really made for. He said, where people do not honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead. Even famous prostitutes and gangsters. And being a Chicagoan, I know he's right. Just let you know. He said, because our spiritual nature, just like our bodily nature, will be served. You don't give your bodily nature food. It will gobble up poison. And if we don't put the right king as the Lord of our lives, we'll put something there. Do you understand this? I'm saying that all thinking human beings have this memory trace of what God made us for. He made us for himself. We were built with eternity in our hearts. We were made to live well when we live in right relationship with God, then we can have other gifts under His authority and use them freely to further God's work in this world. We have been made to follow a good king. We long for a hero. And if any of you remember the song from the 80s from Bonnie Tyler, you can in your heart, not out loud, hum it as I read it to you. Holding out for a hero. Do you remember that? Where have all the good men gone? Women, you'll like this song, I know. Okay. And where are all the gods? Where's that streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and turn and dream of what I need. I need a hero. 
I'm holding out for a hero till the morning light. It's got to be sure, and it's got to be soon, and he's got to be larger than life. See, that's the longing of the human soul. And Jesus, on that first Palm Sunday, is claiming that he is the one that all of us have been made for and that we need. It's alluded to in the story that he tells. But as he rides into Jerusalem, there are a couple of pieces of evidence in which Jesus is declaring that he is this king over all kings. Can I just briefly show it to you? Evidence number one, that Jesus is the king we need, is what I call the the, the potential crying stones. You know, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, just like we had with the children, all the people are shouting and singing and doing what you do when the triumphant king comes back into the city. Uh, they're waving palm branches. They're throwing cloaks on the ground. They're, they're making a lot of noise. And in and, and verse 39 of Luke 19, the Pharisees turn to Jesus and, and they say, rebuke those followers. What are they doing coronating you as the king? And you know what Jesus said in verse 40, famous words. He said, if, they, if the people keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. What, what is he talking about there? He's taking us all the way back to Genesis 3 where all of creation, spiritual, relational, material was affected negatively by sin coming into the world. And the fact that when the new king comes and brings this kingdom in its fullness, everything, everything will be beautiful again and be right again and be be restored again. It's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 that all creation is longing for the return of this king. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If they are quiet while the real king comes walking through the city, listen to me, stones are going to be calling for restoration because everything in creation wants to be made new. You see how how powerful this is. Or the second piece of evidence that Jesus is this king, this long-awaited king over all kings. The peace-filled cult. Read read the triumphal entry. You may already know the story. Jesus calls for a horse because a triumphant king rides a a horse into the city after a great battle's been won. Now it's a little horse. It's a small horse. And that's another story. Next year, you have to come again, and I'll I'll take that up. But if you look back a little bit earlier in verse 30, uh, this colt had never been ridden before. Now, Now let me just ask you a question. If you take a horse and, and you just pop on that horse through this frantic crowd screaming and yelling, does, does the horse say, where to? What are we going to do today? You know that doesn't happen. Horses have to be broken. Why is it that a horse, if you just pop on it and it's never been ridden, will bolt and, and throw you off? I'll tell you why. Horses are smart. They know we're not to be trusted. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, the relationship that we to name the animals, we care for them in a way that's good. That, that trust has been broken. Now to get animals to obey us, we have to do all this work. We're supposed to name them. We're supposed to be this friendship, but, but it's been broken. Any of us who have pets, isn't it an unbelievable thing when at last you can get that pet to do what you wanted it to do? It wasn't meant to be that way. It, it takes so much time to be able to break it in and, and to regain that trust. But here... Jesus climbs upon that unridden horse and with peace they go through that frantic crowd. 
I remember an old southern preacher once saying something like this. That horse is unafraid because Jesus is in the saddle. I, don't know, I still remember it. I, I like that. And went on and on and on about that, that when Jesus is in the saddle of our lives, different from anything else, he doesn't break us. He restores us. We put anything else into that first place of our lives, it will take our lives over. It will control us. But when Jesus is there, he renews us. So that when the people see this, when the people recognize this, they call out what they would only say to this king over all kings. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king we have been waiting for. Now, he wasn't a king like Archelaus. He comes into the city and weeps over those who reject him and then will die to rescue us. But he is still the king. And we are called upon to give our lives to him. And when we do, we are restored. And when we don't, we remain in our sins. We still are lost. And we are not ready to meet So my first question as we have this Palm Sunday is this. Do I recognize that Jesus is the king that the whole universe longs for? What do you see when you see Jesus? I know people can go to church so long and just kind of become religious. But it all has to do with this question. Who is Jesus? What do you see when you see him? And if you see that he is that long-awaited king, Are there still areas of your life that you have not surrendered to his lordship? At the beginning of Holy Week, we must go there again and recognize that we must give all that we are to this king over all kings. Our time goes so quickly, but look, let me show you briefly the second declaration. That was my main point. But I want you to know this, that this king who is over all kings loves you whether you can believe it or not. This point, for those of you who have talked with me this week, I'm not just preaching at you. It seems like every conversation I've had this week has come back to this issue. There's a trouble here. If, if, if I've hidden it. If people knew what I was really like, there's no way uh, that they would care about me. And there's no way God, who does know what I'm like, loves me. I've got to say something about this, don't I, as your pastor. One, Jesus was going into Jerusalem where he would sacrifice his very life out of love, out of love, to forgive you and me of those sins, to offer us a new beginning, and also out of love, the way that our ongoing growth and restoration and renewal will happen is the ongoing experience of the love of God. Jesus is not Archelaus. He abused his people. Jesus loves us. He he gave gifts, these minas, to people so their lives could count. He gave His life as an investment so that we can be different. This is the Gospel. Now, psychologists, Christians or otherwise, are absolutely agreed that, that people who have never experienced unconditional love find it very hard to offer unconditional love to other people. And one of the ongoing conversations that I had this week, if we've never experienced unconditional love, where where we've done things wrong and yet we still are loved and still are received, then we look in the mirror and we can't think that we are of any value that people might love us. And it just distorts and mars the whole of our lives. 
what do we need for healing to begin? We must know an unconditional love. George MacDonald, the great preacher and author of an earlier century, would talk about God being this kind of God who, who comes after us with what he would call an unrelenting love. He will not stop. So that when you come to church this morning and there are times where there, you don't want him to be your king and you walk away and then you think, if I ever even turn back to God, he's just going to condemn me. He'll, he'll, he'll do like Archelaus did and, and, and kill me. What you find is God with arms open wide saying, come back, I am ready to receive you, I am ready to, to forgive you, and I am ready to begin again. The only way our lives will be healed is if somehow I can convince you that healing begins when first God loves us. Then when we experience the love of God, you and I can be turned into people who carry that love and that healing to this world that we are in. I've been here almost two and a half years, and I keep showing you the same prayer that I pray almost every day for each person in this church. Um, I'll show it to you again. You've seen me put it up here so often, but in this context, Ephesians 3, this is the prayer, and I pray when you walk into this place, you will experience this and know it's true. I pray that you, who are rooted and established in love, Ephesians, he's brought us into his family a father who loves us and into a family of other people who needed to know his love, who've been rooted and established in love. I pray that you may have power because you're going to need it together with all of God's people. Power for what? Power to grasp, to hear God's word and to understand it and to believe that God can be trusted, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And power to know that love that goes beyond anything you've ever known so that you can be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God so that you might be restored. I can't tell you, that's what I long to happen when we come together as a church. We sing these wonderful songs, our children come in, but that this will be a place where each one of us comes again and hears this, that while you were sinners, I sent my son and he died for you. And that we can know that and when others think no one could possibly love me as I am, we say, no, let me tell you some good news. So I have to show you one other verse. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. At just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I'm going to ask you, do you believe God when he tells you that? And my second question is, do I sincerely believe that this king over all kings loves me personally? and invests all that he is in us, in me. And that will make us into people who can share that love, which is my third point. As I read this story and then as I read what follows, this king over all kings calls you into service. Uh, and, and that service, I think, is to further what he does, to heal through love as Jesus has done in our lives. You know, in this parable, there are kind of two stories when the, the king goes away, there are those who reject his kingship 
and they end up being judged, but there are those who want to say they want to follow his kingship, and I'm guessing that's most of us here, to whom he gives these minas, and that's a lot. These gifts that he gives them, it's a, a mina was like one-third of a year's salary. And he gave ten to some and five to some and one to some, but it was always a great gift to further his kingdom and to support that kingship. And most of them were doing it and, and were blessed for it. But there was this one who didn't think that this king was uh, anything worth loving and who loved anyone. In fact, verse 21, I want to read it. And you imagine you going to your boss and saying this at your next job review. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. I've already challenged Thomas to do that with his boss this week just to find out what happens and then come back and tell me, Thomas, how that goes. No, no, no. Once we've experienced what God is like, that Jesus is coming to give his life for us, then we bask in that love. And then what is our responsibility as we wait for him to come back? He says the, the kingdom's not coming right now, so you need to wait for it. And our responsibility is that He loves us, He gives Himself to us, He gives His Spirit to us, and He gives gifts to us. And then we invest what He's made us to be in His work. We become good stewards of all that God gives us. Of our time when we're at work, we think through this, how can I work in a way that honors God? How can I share His love and His message with the world around me? When our families and our communities and here in our church too, this is why a church family like Lake Avenue Church, when we see this and get it, we should never go lacking in resources. You see that, either financially or in terms of people serving. Because all of us should be people who see this and say, whatever I have God's given me, I'm going to invest it in what is important to Him, which is bringing His good news and His healing through love to the world. Uh, we were talking with this, Jeremy, and some of us get together on Tuesdays, we were talking about this. And Eric Johnson, who's a young man that we have hired to, to head up our after-school a mentoring program here. It's a great young man. He's giving his testimony next Sunday on Easter Sunday. He began to say, you know what this reminds me of? Uh, the movie Wally. You know, the, the Pixar movie from 2008? Yep, there he is. There. If you haven't seen this, well, I, I've seen it enough for all of us. You know, I was with my uh, grandchildren a few weeks ago. We watched this nonstop. Every time it went off, our, my little granddaughter said, Wally, Ava, Wally. So I know what this story is about. It's telling the story that in the 21st century, this one big mega corporation, by and large, uh, takes over everything. And what they've done to grow, of course, they, they give consumers whatever consumers want, which is just to have pleasure and not have to do anything. So uh, eventually, after, by the year, uh, what was it, 2105, I think, by that year, the whole earth was just covered with trash. So by and large had a, had a great idea. They would build these little wall-e units, kind of garbage compactor units, and they would send all the people away on these luxury starliners, getting everything that they wanted, while these units kind of cleaned up the earth. Well, it didn't work the way that they wanted it to work. Um, and they were, people were going to be on these starliners forever. I think it was like seven or eight hundred years later that we come back and the earth is still a mess and there's only one Wall-E unit still left. Been able to keep himself alive by gathering parts of other units and actually through watching uh, things like musicals had developed the ability to love. And one of the beautiful things about this that I just love so much is this little dirty robot who doesn't have a whole lot. Everything that crosses his path is transformed and made new. A cockroach of all things. One little plant, one little plant that he loves. 
Th- then comes this, this modern uh, probe robot named Eve, Eva, who comes in and at first just doesn't have any kind of sentient experience at all. And then suddenly she starts coming alive. And then they all go to the starliners and everything begins to be changed. Now the captain is able to lead again. And eventually they come back home. And, and when you come to the credits of Wally, it's just brilliantly done. They take you through the art history, starting with Egyptian hieroglyphics and carrying you through uh, the Grecian urns, carrying you up through Da Vinci and Impressionism. And in the very last scene, you have Wally and Eve standing next to this beautiful tree, grown from that one little shoot that he had loved. And, 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 and it's like the book of Revelation. Uh, lush vegetation, and all is restored to what it should be. Andrew uh, Stanton, the conceiver from Pixar of it, I went online to find out why did he make this film, and this is what he said. I'll put it up here. The moral of the film is unconditional love defeats life's programming. Kind of sounds like your pastor's sermon, doesn't it? That, he says, is, is a perfect metaphor for real life because we all fall into our habits, our routines, our ruts, I think as a preacher I'd say our sins, consciously or unconsciously to avoid living well, to avoid having to do the messy parts, to avoid having relationships with other people, of dealing with the person right next to us. He said that's why we can all get on our cell phones and not have to deal with one another. Relationships of irrational and unconditional love are strong enough to heal and restore. What I want to add is this, that it all begins with one key relationship. The king we long for who will love us with an unrelenting, unconditional, and everlasting love. That when we experience that, then we can begin to be made new. When we experience that love of God, then we can begin to know healing enough that we can receive gifts and go out and share the message of Jesus and the love of God so that hurting and damaged people can begin to be restored until the kingdom of God is brought to completion. And so my third question for us all. As I wait for this king over all kings to culminate his kingdom, am I investing all he has entrusted to me to further his love and his mission in the world? Have I become so consumed that the focus of my life has turned back inward? Because I'm telling you, for us really to live when we turn outward to share the love that we have received by His grace, that's when our lives make a difference in those around us. It's not easy. It does not come quickly. But this is how God does His work. And so as I bring our service to a close, I'd like to have Julian. Julian, if you would go back to the organ. I'd like to have a few moments to pray about these three um, questions that I put in front of you. Perhaps you would pull out the kneelers for just a moment. And to be praying about these matters, have I truly 
made Jesus Christ the King and Lord of my life or am I withholding things from him? Are there parts of my thought life, parts of my actions and attitudes that I've wanted to hold on to those? I want you to give them back to him. Number two, do I really believe God when he says, I know you, but I love you? And third, have you become that steward who in response to the love of God has said, Father, all that I am and all that you have entrusted to me, I want to use it to further your gospel and your love in this world. Let God do what he will and then I'll come back up and lead us in prayer.